This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Drow. We here at the Word of the Week are fans of the long con. You might have noticed, for example, that even when we bounce from topic to topic week after week, you can often detect running themes. And we amped that up to 11 a few months ago when we did a massive multi-part epic on the history of sailing and exploration. Long cons are satisfying. They set something up, build up our expectations, and then wham, a climax, a payoff. Of course, here we're using the phrase long con in a storytelling sense, not in the actual sense. Because in the actual sense, a long con pays someone else off at our expense. And the climax is usually, surprise, you just got swindled. See, the phrase long con actually comes from con artists. You know, swindlers and hucksters and scammers and grifters. A con artist is someone who specializes in gaining someone's trust and then using that trust to cheat them out of money. And con artists generally describe their various schemes and scams in two ways. Short cons, also called small cons, are quick and dirty swindles. They focus on quickly gaining someone's trust and then emptying their pockets. That's it. Long cons, also called long games, are much more complicated affairs. The grifter slowly gains the victim's trust, and victims might be called marks, suckers, or gulls. They gain their trust over a period of weeks or months. And once that trust is secured, the con man then cleans that person out, emptying bank accounts, securing valuable possessions, and even stealing from family or friends. Now, you might wonder why a con is called a con. And the answer is actually one of those answers that is both disappointingly obvious and surprisingly more detailed than you might expect. The disappointingly obvious part of the answer is that con is short for confidence. And confidence tricks are called confidence tricks because they involve first gaining a victim's confidence. Simple, right? Well, not really. Because the surprisingly more detailed answer is that there was a specific confidence man. A THE confidence man. And all other con men are called con men after him. In 1849, the New York Herald, then the largest newspaper in New York City, printed a short story about a swindler who had recently been arrested. The man, who they dubbed the Confidence Man, had recently been released from Sing Sing Prison where he did time for running a fairly old scam on the streets of New York City. Samuel Thompson, for that was his proper name, would approach people on the street and ask them to lend him money. Then he'd take the money and run away. That was it. That was the whole con. As scams go, Thompson's barely even qualified as a con game. In essence, he was running a very distilled version of a very old trick. The trick was to get someone to loan a bit of money to you for a short period of time, say a day or so. Generally, the con artist would claim they had some sort of emergency and had misplaced or forgotten their wallet, something like that. The scammer would actually entrust the victim with something valuable as collateral, a piece of jewelry or a watch, and they would obtain the victim's address with the promise that they would show up the next day to repay the loan and reclaim their collateral. 
Of course, the scam artist never actually shows up. And when the victim invariably tries to pawn or sell the collateral, they discover it's worthless. A cheap knockoff watch, or costume jewelry with glass gemstones. But Thompson didn't even bother with that. He just borrowed money and watches and ran away. Even the New York Herald didn't think much of the story. They devoted very little space to it, at least at first. But for some reason that legal scholars and scholars of journalistic history can't quite figure out, the brief note about the confidence man borrowing someone's watch and running away with it captured public interest. We should note here that Samuel Thompson was no Professor Moriarty. Honestly, he barely stood on the level of the cookie crook. His criminal career seems to have started in 1840 or 1841 as a pickpocket and minor burglar. He and his brother were caught robbing a store in New York and jailed for two years. When Thompson was released, he moved to Philadelphia and tried to join a gang of thieves under the leadership of a burglar named the High Constable Jim Young. We kid you not. The gang quickly discovered that Thompson was too clumsy, uncoordinated, and accident-prone so they kicked him out. Thompson moved from city to city for a while, making do with pickpocketing and other petty crime. It wasn't a very lucrative life. But Thompson had one thing going for him. He was charming. Disarming, even. And that's when he started running his swindles. He'd approach people on the street and engage them in friendly chat. That came naturally to him. He'd then lead them to believe he was an old acquaintance that they couldn't remember. And then, he'd ask them to lend him money to prove that they trusted him. Seriously, that was his scam. Come on, you remember me, don't you? You do? Great! Prove it. Let me hold your watch for a day. And it worked. Several times. The Herald ran several more stories about Thompson as they learned more details. And when they realized people were eating up the stories, they embellished. A lot. The confidence man became an accomplished swindler, a master criminal, and possessed of a certain financial genius, address, tact, and skill. And Thompson loved it. While he waited for his trial, he began styling himself as the confidence man and he used his newfound reputation to his advantage. He bribed his guards for favors, promising them that, as a master criminal, he had plenty of money to pay them off. He managed to convince a fan of his to agree to pay his bail. And, through artful persuasion, he even managed to convince the district attorney himself to hold his bail hearing very suddenly and quietly one Sunday morning and to set a very small bail indeed. And as he walked out of the courtroom, his bail paid, a freed man. He had the poor sense to brag about one of his earlier burglaries in Philadelphia. He was immediately rearrested. And that was the end of the confidence man. But the phrase stuck. Other newspapers across the country picked up the story of the confidence man. Editorials were written comparing Wall Street bankers and politicians to the confidence man. And when other swindlers were arrested, they were dubbed confidence man copycats. And that is why, to this day, 
we refer to such swindlers as con men. Now, Thompson was clumsy and no criminal genius. But legal scholars and professed criminals alike have grudgingly had to admit that Thompson was particularly skilled at condensing all of the stages of a traditional con into one brief exchange. By the time that Thompson was doing his thing, the profession of swindling had grown very complex. There was an art to it, an art that was well understood by its practitioners. And that art was best summed up in a book published in 1923 by a reformed con artist named Edward H. Smith. In that book, he described the six essential steps to pulling off a successful confidence trick. The first step was to prepare the con. The con artist would decide how the con would work and figure out what props, assistance, and other accoutrements might be needed. Once those preparations were complete, the con artist would make contact with the victim for the first time. After contact came the build-up. The con artist would appeal to one of the victim's base desires, usually greed, but other emotional levers could also be used, such as fear or guilt or embarrassment. Following the build-up, it was often necessary for a little bit of convincing to happen. And that usually took the form of a small payoff or other proof of the con artist's noble intentions. For example, a fraudulent investment might pay off a small profit. Then comes the so-called hurrah. During the hurrah, the fraudsters suddenly create some kind of urgency, forcing the victim to take action immediately. The hurrah is the moment at which the con succeeds or fails. And at any one of these stages, a co-conspirator might offer an in and in. That's when an accomplice, a confederate of the con artist pretending to be another innocent bystander also buys into the scam to drag the victim along. Now some cons omit some of these phases, but the general pattern always remains the same. Preparation, contact, buildup, and sudden urgency. You can see the general format at work in one of the oldest street cons in history. Today, we call it Find the Lady or Three Card Monty. In the Middle Ages, it was called Thimble Rig. And in ancient Greece, it was called the Shell Game. Ostensibly, the shell game is a completely fair gambling game. The dealer has three walnut shells or seashells or thimbles. He places a pea under one of the shells and shuffles them up. He then invites someone to bet money that they can guess where the pea is. If they guess correctly, they win an equal amount of money. If they don't guess correctly, they lose their bet. Simple, right? But clearly, the odds are stacked and the game is a terrible deal. So why does anyone do it? Well, because there's more to it than that. Generally speaking, during the first round of play, if no one is willing to bet, the dealer will offer someone a chance to play for free. The dealer will also use sleight of hand or other trickery to ensure the shill, his partner, wins. After the shill has won his first game free, he, or another member of the crowd, is generally willing to place another bet. Thereafter, more sleight of hand trickery ensures that the pea isn't under any of the shells and the mark can't win. Thus, we see the basic stages of the con. Preparation, contact, build-up, payoff, and hurrah. The shell game is an example of a particular type of con known as the get-rich-quick con. 
These are cons that appeal directly to someone's greed. A more modern example of the same sort of con is the Nigerian Prince email scam. Those scams are also known as 419 scams after the numbered section of the Nigerian criminal code that makes such fraud illegal. Another type of very old con, and exactly the sort of thing that might find its way into your Dungeons and Dragons game, is the pig in a poke scam, which is where we get that particular idiom. It is also called the cat in the bag scam, and is where we get the idiom about the cat being out of the bag. The pig in a poke is a simple type of so-called gold brick scam. These are scams that involve selling something for far more than it's worth. In this case, the thing being sold is a bag containing a healthy, suckling pig which could be raised into adulthood, give birth to baby pigs, and then get turned into delicious pork. The supposed pig is tied inside a bag and the purchaser is cautioned not to open the bag lest the excitable young pig escape. And the pig certainly seems to be excitable. The bag is squirming and struggling. It's only when the purchaser gets the bag home and opens it that they find they have actually bought a common alley cat. Which, being a cat, cannot give birth to baby pigs and cannot be turned into delicious pork or sausage. Usually. But, as we noted, not all confidence tricks appeal to greed. Some rely on fear. And these sorts of false injury cons are also very old tricks. For example, consider the smack game or coin game. This one involves a gambling game being run by a con artist and two players who we will call Alice and Bob. During the game, Alice suddenly excuses herself temporarily to take care of some personal business. In her absence, the dealer convinces Bob to help him rig the game against Alice. The dealer agrees to split the winnings with Bob. When Alice returns, Bob and the dealer start cheating. And then things go wrong. Alice realizes she's being cheated. She becomes furious. She threatens Bob and the dealer, perhaps even with violence. Bob and the dealer attempt to calm Alice down. Eventually, the dealer offers Alice a bribe and invites Bob to offer Alice the same amount of money. Alice takes the bribe from both and leaves. Bob runs away in a panic. At that point, Alice returns and splits the bribe money they took from Bob with the dealer because Alice was in on the con all along. A simpler and much older con that appeals entirely to fear and shame is called the Badger Game. The Badger Game involves coercing someone into a compromising or shameful position, such as an extramarital affair. Once the victim has been drawn into some illicit behavior, the scam artist threatens to expose them unless blackmail is paid. Then, too, there is the classic fortune-telling scam. The fortune-telling scam involves convincing someone that you have mystical powers. And that usually involves various methods of psychological trickery that are collectively known as cold reading. Cold reading refers to convincing a person that you can determine, supposedly through some form of magic, personal details about them. That's the reading part. Without any prior knowledge of the person, that's the cold part. 
And most cold reading techniques begin with something that has been called the Barnum Technique, although more recently it has become known as the Forer Effect. The Barnum Technique was first described in detail by legendary showman P.T. Barnum, although it is far, far older and prophets and oracles have been relying on it for centuries. Barnum explained that people have a natural tendency to hear specific personal details in very general statements. Thus, the Barnum Technique involves making statements that are very general and true of almost everybody. For example, I sense that you've been thinking a lot about your future lately. Since most people spend at least some of their time thinking about the future, almost everyone will say yes, even if it hasn't been foremost on their mind. This effect was demonstrated conclusively by psychologist Bertram Forer in 1948 when he gave each of his students a detailed personal analysis of that student's personality and asked each student to rate them for accuracy. The average rating was 4.25 out of 5 for accuracy. After each student was stunned by their professor's highly accurate analysis, Professor Forer revealed that each student had been given the exact same analysis and that said analysis had been compiled from newspaper horoscopes. But cold reading only starts with the Barnum Technique. A skilled reader will actually begin by eliciting cooperation and managing expectations. Often the psychic will claim that their visions are hazy and they may need help to interpret them. And the psychic will warn that the spirits or cards or chicken bones can only offer vague possibilities. Thus, the subject is primed to ignore inaccuracies and to volunteer information. So after the psychic says, you've been worrying about the future, haven't you? The subject might say, yes, I just lost my job and I haven't had any luck finding a new one. Cold reading is also aided by skilled observation and deductive reasoning. Merely by looking over a person, you can make assessments regarding someone's socioeconomic class and status, their general level of health, and so on. And more specific details can be quite telling. You can infer a lot about someone's education level by their vocabulary. Details like logos on clothing might indicate interests and hobbies. Details like engagement rings or wedding rings or signs that wedding rings have been removed might speak of marital status. And when combined with overt physical characteristics like sex, age, and ethnicity, cold readers often engage in pigeonholing. That's a form of stereotyping where you try to put someone into a specific category which you can then use to deduce more about that person. For example, a teenage girl is likely to respond to statements about popularity and peer pressure, whereas an elderly woman is probably preoccupied with health concerns and has likely lost close friends and family in the recent past. Observant, charismatic people can easily learn cold reading techniques. There are a lot of them, but they aren't very complicated. And we should disclose that at least half of the Word of the Week team successfully made a good deal of money in high school, providing psychic and tarot card readings, which were touted as remarkably accurate. Entirely on the basis of cold reading techniques. While we're on the subject of cold reading and fortune-telling cons, it's worth sharing the story of the Fox sisters. Because 
Like the confidence man Samuel Thompson, they ran a very simple con game that quickly snowballed, and it has created tropes and terms we're familiar with today. And this story also happened to start in 1948 and 1949. But it didn't start with a scam. It started with a prank. On a farm in Hydesdale, New York, 15-year-old Maggie Fox and her 11-year-old sister Katie decided to scare their mother with strange knocking and moaning noises. Mrs. Fox quickly became convinced that the little farmhouse was haunted. As Mrs. Fox searched the house one night, the wily Katie suddenly addressed the ghost. She said, Mr. Splitfoot, do as I do. And she snapped her fingers. And soon, snaps answered in the darkness, presumably from a quick-thinking Maggie. There followed a series of communications between Katie and the ghost by clapping, knocking, and rapping on walls. The next day, the girls felt guilty, but they didn't want to get into trouble. So they suggested to their mother that someone was playing a prank. Someone, not them. But the mother was now convinced the house was haunted and that her daughters could communicate with the ghost. So the girls decided to play along. They arranged a seance during which the Fox sisters and their mother would communicate with the spirit with some neighbors in attendance as witnesses. During the seance, the girls asked questions which the spirit would answer by knocking or clapping. But this time, the girls' hands were visible and there was no obvious source of the disembodied taps and bangs. Word of the seances soon spread and they caught the public imagination. And in the decades that followed, spiritualism and seances became all the rage. The Fox sisters became famous. Katie and Maggie were joined by their older sister, Leah. Skeptics attempted to expose them as frauds, but to no avail. In one famous incident, the girls were searched top to bottom, even their undergarments, and then were trussed up and bound from head to foot. And still, their questions were answered with a staccato of ghostly tappings, like a telegraph from the hereafter. Eventually, after two decades in the public spotlight and at the height of the spiritualism craze, Fame began to take its toll on the girls. Maggie left the public spotlight to wed famous explorer Elisha Kent Kane. But his family refused to accept her, and they lived out of wedlock until an accident left Kane dead, and Maggie fell into despair and alcoholism. Kate also descended into alcoholism and moved to England to escape her fame. By the mid-1880s, spiritualism was on the decline in the United States. Maggie was forced to stand trial for fraud, Kate lost her husband and lost custody of her children due to an arrest for public drunkenness. And then, in 1888, Maggie Fox gave an infamous public appearance. She walked out onto the stage of the New York Academy of Music and announced that her loneliness and despair left her only two choices, either come clean or commit suicide. She decided to admit the truth. The whole thing was a sham. Maggie and Katie had produced all of the strange noises merely by loudly cracking their toes. Skeptics shouted their I told you so's as loud as they could. 
while devoted spiritualists denounced Maggie. They claimed Maggie was lying, that she was a depressed drunk trying to regain some of her lost relevance. Spiritualism was real, they said, and Maggie was just bitter that she was no longer at the center of it. But we digress. Our point was that we here at the Word of the Week love a good long con. A narrative long con, where you build something up, tantalize an audience, and offer hints while leading them astray. And then you spring the hurrah. And that is why we love the Dark Elves of Dungeons and Dragons. That's why we love the Drow. It's just a shame we're out of time. I guess you'll just have to wait to hear that story until after we get back from Gen Con. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.